Welcome to the Option 3 Podcast. This is the Fall 2020 episode. I'm recording it literally in Fall 2021, but I forgive myself. I give myself compassion. I've had a year filled with existential adventure, and I might be sharing a little bit about COVID dating on the last track of this episode. In the meantime, we'll be talking about, as usual, policy and culture. Please like and subscribe on all channels. Option 3 Project, as always, is the handle everywhere. If you want to donate, please visit option3project.org. That's option with the character 3, project.org. Music credits on the final track. So let's jump right in. I wanted to make some observations about the story of Harry and Meghan. All of this is kind of a joke to me. I really don't care why these people left the royal family or to what are the details of it. What interests me is that they did leave. It's a story of jealousy and conflict between his brother, potentially over some type of philandering that involved someone named Rose Hanbury. Harry also has felt trapped, I believe, as being a royal. There is also the story of Meghan's first curtsy, which I guess didn't go very well. My sense is that Harry is a bit of a self-effacing person, traumatized, no doubt, and he has had to reflect on life because of the trauma that his mother went through and because of the trauma of his mother's death, when it actually happened, how it happened, the insensitivity of the grandmother and uh, the intrigue as to whether or not maybe Diana was killed through a conspiracy. Many people have said that Diana saw things as they truly were, and I'm not going to unpack that statement. Those of you who understand it can understand it. I think Harry has has gone into therapy and tried to resolve some of this bullshit, that process has enabled him to leave an abusive structure. And I'm, I'm impressed by that. I absolutely hate the British royal family. I find monarchy grotesque and opposed to human progress. And for obvious reasons, democracy itself, even contemporary republics, they are at odds with monarchies. And I've talked about this in the liberal dialectic blog. I think the decision for this couple to leave is is great, and it signals uh, a fracturing of the monarchy in England, psychologically, spiritually, and symbolically. It's another step towards the English people ridding themselves of this yoke. Another subject that took my attention in the fall of 2020 was ice sterilization. In November, the AP reported that six women had claimed that Dr. Mahendra Amin had performed unnecessary hysterectomies. According to Common Dreams, an additional seven also accused him of the same. In September, a nurse at the Atwin County Detention Center in Georgia filed a whistleblower complaint regarding this matter. I see this as part of the Western and Westernized mistreatment of women of color, poor women, and disabled women. It is a part of the eugenics tradition here in the States that preceded the Nazi regime, which learned from these early 20th century efforts and policies. According to MSM.com, as many as 70,000 people, mostly women, were sterilized during the last century. We have had a major role to play in the disruption of development in Latin America. It's kind of a dead subject, 
it's kind of old hat, old news, but it's still important. I was watching a segment on Vice News Tonight on Wednesday, May 13th, 2021. It cataloged a treatment of people involving sleep deprivation, disorder, deceit, and punishment regarding the Title 42 process of expelling immigrants. Title 42 focuses on reducing crowding due to COVID, which at face value is very reasonable. But now people are crowding on the Mexican side, which is a problem. And I guess fundamentally speaking, I really, really believe we have the resources to do better. And it's not about socialism. It is about helping people. And it's not the end of the world to help people. Major corporations get enormous amounts of help from the American taxpayer. And people that conflate these issues of socialism and helping immigrants and integrating Im- immigrants at, at, at some with a ta- which does cost money, the people who conflate these issues are full of shit. My goal is not to say whether or not the election was stolen. The point I want to share on the one hand is that it doesn't really matter anymore because cheating has become a part of the game. JFK cheated. Nixon cheated and got caught. Bush 43 likely cheated. As argued in the documentary Hacking Democracy, he did not get caught. Trump cheated and was ostensibly caught and was not charged. Obviously, I have heard the conspiracy that Dominion voting systems was susceptible to hacking on behalf of President Biden. Mainstream media indicates this theory is bullshit. I tend to agree for the time being. At least 86 lawsuits have failed to produce evidence, and further Newsmax had to retract claims that Dominion's head of product strategy and security, Eric Coomer, had been in a meeting to advance an Antifa scheme in the election. I do think some courts can ignore issues, but it's hard when you see multiple courts doing it. And the whole Arizona audit process reproduced multiple occasions evidence that Biden had won. But still, I have not reviewed all the arguments. There are sources to be found. Michigan attorney Matthew DiPerno is one, for instance. As a thought experiment, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, these conspiracy theorists. I'm going to say that maybe they're right. Maybe Biden did cheat. The problem with that view is the following. The evidence of cheating on either side is more readily available in regard to Republicans on multiple points. Hacking Democracy focuses on diebold election systems and follows the work of an organization called Black Box Voting. In a CNN interview, Bev Harris, who once headed black box voting, said that election hacking is possible for either side of the aisle. The underlying thesis in the documentary is that tampering benefited Bush in Florida in 2000 and 2004. The film Kill Chain is more careful not to indicate one side would tamper with the 2020 election. It had been produced prior to the election. The film does point out that Republican Mitch McConnell has blocked votes on five bipartisan bills to examine this issue. However, we do have to consider that the Mueller report, and much more importantly and effectively, the GOP, let me repeat that, the GOP-led Senate report from summer 2020 both made it clear that Trump intended to gain illicit advantages in 2016. The tape of Trump talking to Ukrainian President Zelensky affirms this pattern of intention in 2020. Both parties would cheat if given the chance. If anything, 
the Democrats are possibly more effective at it because the evidence that they did it is harder to locate. And in my opinion, you should expect it from both sides, given the overall themes of corruption in both documentaries, Hacking Democracy and Kill Chain, both directed by Simon Ardizone. If the Democrats cheated, and I have not seen evidence that they did in this election cycle, they come by it honestly. Obviously, that's a very cynical view. But as Trump would say, it is what it is. My larger point that I want to share is, I think we need to go back to paper ballots. Almost, you know, that seems to be a very concrete solution to the problem, or possibly some type of blockchain technology solution. It should also be noted in this subject matter that the Republicans are the party of voter suppression. I, I think there's no doubt about that. Anybody who's reasonable will see that. Both parties manipulate districting and redistricting, but the Republicans are better at it. They have a history of voter suppression efforts and new laws in Florida, Georgia, Arizona, and possibly elsewhere. Unfortunately for them, there are some indication that whites face a demographic shift toward Hispanic, Asian, and multiracial voters and a population of people that are increasingly aware of the black American experience and all the pain involved in that. I said this in my first podcast essay titled The Last White Man. I essentially argued that Trump was the last thrashings of a dissipating group. And it will take centuries for white power to really attenuate. I have a lot of compassion for white people. I am genetically mostly white. If you know my work, I've talked about this subject before. You know, I think people cheat and I honestly don't... It's not that I don't have a problem with it. I just think it needs to be a balanced discussion because the evidence of cheating by the Republicans is significant, in, uh, particularly in 2000 and 2004 and 2016. The people that are out there making these claims need to understand that. Hong Kong. So there was a bill, and it's called the Fugitive Offenders and Mutual Legal Assistance in Criminal Matters Legislation, parenthesis, Amendment Bill of 2019. It was a proposed bill to essentially undermine the one country, two systems concept between mainland China and Hong Kong. That wasn't its essential purpose, necessarily. In particular, it exposed Hong Kong citizens and foreign nationals to the risk of extradition to Taiwan, Macau, and mainland China. Protests began on the Ides of March 2019. Major protests occurred on June 9, 12, and 16. The bill was suspended on the 15th, but people wanted a complete withdrawal. On September 4th, Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong, withdrew the bill but did not acquiesce to four other protest demands. She soon invoked emergency powers to implement anti-mask laws, violent protests involving police, counter-protesters, and protesters occurred in the second half of 2019. On November 24, the district county election leaned heavily in the pro-democracy direction. The reason I want to talk about this, let me take a step back, and I'll, I'll come back to this at the end, but essentially there's a theme here, and it's very much in line with two tendencies I see. Fareed Zakaria in 1997 spoke of the rise of illiberal democracy, which is where you have these sort of semi-functional democracies that are kind of in name only because of a ruling oligarchy. Now, Hong Kong is not a 
true democracy per se, and uh, it has some democratic tendencies, both in an economic and a political sense, more so economic. And then simultaneously, in line with Farid Zakaria's concept here, there's this other concept that was uh, that I noted from an, from a reporter named Robin Wright. She published a piece in the New Yorker about how. 2019 was the year of protest. As much as I definitely think Farid Zakaria is on the money with regard to the rise of illiberal democracies globally, especially, you know, with Trump and Erdogan and sort of a number of others and the way that Putin is handling himself, you see this tendency in a number of different locations. Even though those aren't perfect democracies, they all sort of came out of the 90s with this sort of democratic flavor. And now you see this sort of fascist or authoritarian uh, counter, counter flavor, if you want to call it that. In any case, Robin Wright talks about 2019 as this year of protest. I see all this as intertwined with the question of the rising consciousness thesis, which I have shared many times, and I'm not alone in this notion that people are rising in their consciousness. On the one hand, governments, while they're both aware of this, and they're also increasing their own repressive tendencies, people are responding. People don't want that shit. Okay, let me get back to the description of what happened in Hong Kong as best as I can understand. In 2020, COVID slowed the protests along with Faster police responses to protests and mass arrests, in particular in the Polyusage Polytechnic University. Meanwhile, COVID prevention laws have helped to undermine protests. On April 18, police arrested 15 pro-democracy activists, which was condemned internationally. In May 2020, Beijing published an even more long-winded Orwellian law, and this is a humdinger called the Decision of the National People's Congress on Establishing and Improving the Legal System and Enforcement Mechanisms for the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region to Safeguard National Security. It is another major threat to the one country, two systems concept and prompted many to consider leaving Hong Kong. It also seems to have quelled the larger tumult for now, with a great assist from COVID. Having said that, the original extradition bill was essentially defeated by popular protest. And that's what I really want to emphasize here. The people succeeded to an extent, even though there was a backlash with this other law that seems to be in full full effect now. And you have people being uh, impacted by the law, being put in prison in Hong Kong. Protesters. So I basically kind of made this comparison between Fareed Zakaria and the illiberal democracy concept and Robin Wright in this notion of popular protest during 2019. And, I, you know, these are these tensions that we see in the global landscape. I'm going to be doing another piece coming up in the next episode on the Thailand protests, which in, which also happens to integrate into the monarchical structures question, which I think, you know, as, as I continue to develop my rising consciousness thesis, I think people are rejecting monarchy more and more. Very much, we're continuing the path begun in 1215 with Magna Carta. We are still in that chapter of history, in a sense. History moves very slow. The dialectic nature of things is slow, but it is not without progress. In the end, we are going to win. The oppressor, and more importantly, the repressors in the United States and abroad will not outlive the rising consciousness trend. 